Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The province of Alberta is in conflict with the federal liberal government of Mr. Trudeau. And uh, Premier Daniel Smith and her UCP government passed the Alberta Sovereignty within a United Canada Act on December the 8th, 2022. The Premier has, since that time, challenged Ottawa on its overreach into provincial constitutionally enshrined jurisdiction over energy development with the Supreme Court of Canada by strong majority supporting Alberta's position. The No More Pipelines bill said no more of Mr. Gilbo, well, he said it was a suggestion, didn't he? Or something like that from the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court does not provide advice or suggestions or uh, sleepy guidance. They make decisions. Let's talk to the Premier of Alberta. On, uh, as, we, as we end 2023, what an eventful year. Premier, how are you doing? Fantastic. Nice to talk to you, Roy. Good to talk to you. Can, can we, uh, I'd like to start with a s- subject that I didn't mention in my introduction, and that is the concerns about youth radicalization in this country. Yesterday, in uh, the Ottawa area, a 15-year-old arrested by the RCMP, and on Wednesday, a 16-year-old was arrested in Calgary. What's your sense? What's your concern? Well... I think what we have is a real polarization. We're trying to to make sure that people understand that when they come to our country, that uh, we have to put aside historical hatreds. We've got to make sure every community member feels loved and valued and safe and protected. And I'm gravely concerned that uh, over the past number of uh, months since the Hamas terrorist attack in Israel, that we've seen greater polarization. And I, I, I hope that we don't see more of these kinds of incidents because as, uh, as people start normalizing this uh, kind of disruption and uh, these, kinds of, uh, these kinds of actions, you, you tend to see more copycats. And I think we need to, to make sure that people have an opportunity to express themselves freely, but there can be no tolerance for anti-Semitism. No, no tolerance as well for uh, for Islamophobia that can sometimes be the the consequence of of that as well. And I I just I just hope that that the temperature is brought down in Canada because we we want to be a welcoming society. Yeah, we certainly cannot uh, permit the uh, arguments of uh, genocide to be to be promoted publicly and uh, in our institutions of of learning in this country. So. So there's a long way to go here, and things have to be uh, have to be this has this has to be addressed. Sixteen year old in Calgary, your city, and fifteen year old in Canada in in Ottawa. So a lot to be addressed. Um, so let, let's start first of all. Then let's go to the issue of uh, what went on at COP twenty eight and how it affected the relationship between Alberta and the federal government. Uh, what's your takeaway impression from COP twenty eight? Was it worth it? I can tell you, I, uh, I sure wish that the provinces had had a greater presence there uh, over the, the last number of years. Scott Moe and I were both there, and we were I think we were able to, to demonstrate why it is oil-producing regions need, need to be part of the discussion. They, they were on a, on a pathway to have a, a very radical statement about uh, completely phasing out fossil fuels. They ended up with something a little more modest that 
talks about carbon capture utilization and storage. It talks about natural gas being a transition fuel. Um, and I, I think that that's where we, we need to, to be. We need to be encouraging the development of countries that don't have electricity or energy use at all. So we're going to have to, to make sure that, that that is addressed at the same time as we reduce emissions. So I'm a bit disappointed that there doesn't seem to be this recognition that we can continue to use these, these uh, very powerful, very reliable fuels, but we're all trying to reduce emissions. I, I think that people like Stephen Guibault has made it very clear that he's trying to kill this industry. He's trying to put production caps in place. And uh, his radical agenda has come through pretty loud and clear in the in the actions that he took there and the statements that he's made since he come he, since he came back home. But I mean, we're not going to put up with that. It's not how our constitution works. The federal government can't come in and unilaterally shut an industry down. And I, I hope that we can get the rest of the country on board with this because I have to tell you, Ontario's next. Um, they they're, they're testing the waters to see if they can easily get away with shutting down oil and gas production. But on Tuesday. They're going to announce that they're shutting down the uh, traditional manufacture of automobiles in our country um, on the hopes that everybody by 2035 is going to want to drive an electric car. And I, I'm waiting for the outcry from Ontarians. I'm waiting for the outcry from the unions there. I've already heard the Manufacturers Association say it's completely implausible, can't be achieved. But these are the kind of things that they will do. If they can get away with doing this to us, to Saskatchewan, they're going to continue um, uh, targeting specific industries, and everybody's going to be hit by this. We, we all have to, to be standing up and asking for a voice of reason to prevail. Yeah, Premier, and this is nothing new with the Trudeau government. I played a clip for Premier Mo, but I'm, I'm going to play for you right now. This was set in 2016. We can't shut down the oil sands tomorrow. Uh, we need to phase them out. We need to manage the transition off of our dependence on fossil fuels. Uh, that is going to take time. And in the meantime, we have to manage that transition. So phase out, manage the transition. Have you heard those before? Yeah, and he's been trying to, I think, uh, couch his words a little bit uh, more carefully in recent years. But the agenda is pretty clear. The, uh, the fact that when we went to COP, we uh, didn't have any advance notice of what it is they were going to be announcing there. They were asking us to sign non-disclosure agreements to get a sneak peek at how they were going to be invading our jurisdiction. They announced massive methane reductions, massive uh, new emissions cap, specifically on oil and gas, targeting our industry. Um, and so, but that, that I guess, is, is a demonstration that they haven't heard what the court has said. The court has said cooperative federalism means you have to cooperate. You can't just announce edicts in another order, another order of government's area of jurisdiction. And so that's what I, I think I'm most, most alarmed by, is that we I recognize that the courts are a referee. We win some, we lose some. But we keep winning, and the federal government keeps on ignoring it. Well, what do we do when we have a lawless federal government that doesn't follow the Constitution, that doesn't listen to the court, and that continues to make these kinds of pronouncements. I mean, the, the, this is a, we're getting into some pretty dangerous zones here, and I, I think it's going to, to create a constitutional crisis, may create a national unity crisis, but, but uh, they've got to stand down because none of this makes sense, and it's hurting people. That's the bottom line for this, is it's driving up the cost of everything. When you look at, at food production, I listened to your comment from Scott Moe earlier, 80% of our food production relies on fossil fuels whether it's the machinery that goes out on the field or whether it's the propane you need to, to dry the grains or whether it's transporting it to market. Um, so when they attack our energy security, they're attacking our food security at the same time. 
And that is uh, just driving up the cost of, of everything that, uh, that average families are, are struggling with right now. And they, they have to cool it. They, they have to, to take a break, realize that we can achieve these targets with a longer time frame to 2050. And they've got to put the affordability piece at the front and center because people are hurting right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 6.8 million Canadians are living in uh, food insecure environments, and that includes 1.8 million kids. And they don't seem to pay attention to that. They, they don't have time for that. 40% of Canadians told pollsters they lose sleep at night because they're concerned about their own personal economies because they've struggled so much in 2023. And yet Mr. Gibo and uh, Mr. Trudeau assure us that all the great jobs are coming and it's, uh, this is what we have to, have to do. Um, interesting point made by a listener who sent me an email, Premier. And that was, you know, let's talk about the carbon tax, sure. But let's also talk about the size of the bureaucracy that must be in place in order to administer the carbon tax. I never thought of that until I got the email. No, it's massive. You know, it's, it's funny. I, I, um, energy isn't even the principal responsibility of the federal government. The resources are the principal responsibility of provinces. And I was told that their bureaucracy for energy is three times the size of Alberta's. So you can only imagine that uh, what kind of bureaucracy they're building up in environments and to, to, to be able to support these programs. Mm-hmm. It's enormous. I mean, if, I, guess, I guess the thing I, I wish we could focus more on, and this is what we do in our province, is that we focus on having a light touch and encouraging industry and innovation to solve this problem. And that's part of the reason why we developed a program where companies have industrial pricing on their emissions, they pay into a fund, that fund goes to support innovators. We funded 260 different projects, and we've been able to see some successes from geothermal to direct air capture, lithium development, and that has a very light touch from a bureaucratic point of view. You start stepping in and, and trying to dictate and do command and control and force um, an outcome that isn't achievable. All you end up doing is growing the bureaucracy, costing people money, and you don't achieve the outcome. Even while you're paying the income tax, you're paying for the salaries of the people who are administering it, and those salaries are not bad. So you uh, you, you, you uh, said that the federal environment minister was guilty of treachery. Yep. Explain to us. I would call it. I think that's the right word for it. I mean, we, we, were, we were quite trusting. From the, from the moment I got elected, I, I told the federal government I wanted to work with them on a 2050 target for carbon neutrality. We've worked really well together on a couple of projects. Uh, Air Products is a net zero hydrogen facility that's going to help decarbonize our transportation fuels. We've got Interpipeline that's been developed, which is going to export ammonia, which is a a new market for us in Japan. Dow Dow Chemical announced a major investment for a net zero petrochemical plant. So we're actually going to have net zero plastics. And then uh, next year, Heidelberg is uh, getting to the finish line on the first net zero cement plant in the world. And cement is the second most used commodity, most traded commodity. These are great successes that we've demonstrated we can work together on. We had a 45% emissions reduction that we achieved early, and uh, we were we're working with the federal government on exploring the idea of small modular reactors. We've even put a pilot project together with with, uh, Synovus to see if we can get some regulatory certainty around that about how we might be able to roll it out. So we've come to the table in the spirit of cooperation we put together a joint panel to discuss how we might work together. And then Stephen Gibbon flies halfway across the world and dumps a bunch of policies out of the blue on our head without consultation and tells us, eh, 
whatever. Those tables aren't decision-making tables. They're just information sharing. Like that's treachery. That really is. That's deception. There's no other way to describe it. And it's unacceptable. It's an unacceptable way to treat an important partner in confederation. That's why I keep saying we really have had enough of it. I, I can work well with some of the some of the ministers at the federal level, but I certainly can't work with him. I, I've, I've been asking for him to be removed. I think he's causing great, great damage to this country and great, great damage to uh, the credibility of the, of the federal it's government. It's not likely that Justin Trudeau is going to remove him because Trudeau personally recruited him. He's, uh, you know what, then I guess they continue to watch their, their poll numbers go down. No, they don't and want I to don't do that. Believe I don't, but they have, look, look at, I mean, they don't even really have a mandate. They got yeah, 32%. No, they don't. They don't have a mandate. You're actually absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. 32% of the vote. Yep. They are now down to somewhere between 20 and 21% support, which is an indication that Albertans and Canadians do not support the direction that they're taking. If an election were held today, they'd probably lose resoundingly. People are talking about them even taking on third party status. Mm -hmm. And yet they're acting as, as if they have dictatorial powers to make okay. decisions, not only in their areas of jurisdiction, but in our areas. Of so can we just, so, can we just have a look down the, the road a little bit into 2024? What do you foresee as far as this relationship is concerned? Because I gather from what you've told us that the well is now totally poisoned as far as Guibault is concerned. Um, what do you see taking place potentially in 2024? How nasty could this get? I, I'll tell you my approach. My approach will be I will work with them in areas where I think we do have some, some common common ground. I, I think that building out our hydrogen economy, uh, the infrastructure Yeah, but, but what, I'm, what I'm curious about is how nasty do you see this potentially getting? What are you prepared for? Well, I, I'll, I'll defend my jurisdiction. There's no question. Like I'm, I've already said, we're, we're just not going to follow laws that are illegally enacted, unconstitutional, and violate our ability to manage our affairs and take care of our people. I'm not shutting in the oil and natural gas industry. I'm not going to achieve net zero emissions by 2035 in our power grid. We're, we're going to go to 2050. We will build new natural gas based load power. Um, we will make sure that our food producers are protected. We will make sure that people have cars to buy in 2026. I mean, I have a responsibility to make sure that uh, that Albertans have access to the things that they need. And if the federal government is trying to put up barriers to stand in the way, we're going to work around them. We'll find whatever way we can to work around them. I, I just, you know, this is just a personal comment for me, a year-ending comment. I'm just glad that we have Premier Smith and Premier Moe in this country. Somebody's got to push back against this one uh, one agenda, one issue agenda that the Trudeau government has. Um, yeah. So I, do you want to fill something in here for 30 seconds that I haven't asked you about? <laughs> well, I think you know how it goes in this business. You remember? I know. 30 seconds. Well, I promise you ask go for it. Former talk show host <laughs> go talk for, for 30 it. seconds. You might get more than you bargained. For. Go for it. Look, I, I just, I'm encouraging, um, everybody, uh, to, to put pressure on their premiers. I think that we have an historic opportunity now for the premiers to be the counterbalance to an out of control federal government. I think there are some people we can work with in the federal government. There are some voices in reason, uh, of reason, but Gibo is not one of them. And people need to be asking their MP, why are you letting him destroy the country? Why are you letting him destroy the party? Why are you letting him hurt people? Because that's what's happening. He's, he's acting in a way that is not in keeping with the best interests of Canadians. And uh, I, I think it's time for all of us to put pressure on, on MPs as well as our premiers to stand up and start talking about it. That's a good 30 seconds. And you hit it right on the button. <laughs> 
You remember how this works. <laughs> you bet. We'll do it again. Uh, part of our conversation with um, Ido Moed, the Israeli ambassador to Canada, we've had a number of conversations with the ambassador, and uh, we appreciate him coming on the program. He had uh, significant concern about, clearly, about the level of violence and the uh, genocidal uh, announcements and chanting that's going on in this country and the violence that's uh, been directed toward Canadian Jewish population. As you know, a 15-year-old in Canada, Ontario, arrested by the RCMP is facing terrorism-related charges. And that's a story that was broken by Global News yesterday. And a 16-year-old in Calgary faced a similar situation, was arrested on Wednesday. Uh, Post-secondary institutions in this country, students chanting their genocidal messaging and threatening the uh, Jewish students who attend those post-secondary institutions. And then, of course, there was the Trudeau government's voting for the UN resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in the United Nations or at the United Nations. That uh, humanitarian ceasefire call, and no mention of Hamas, not a word. Avi Ben-Lolo is the founding chairman and CEO of the Abraham Global Peace Initiative, that's agpi.com, the Abraham Global Peace Initiative, and they have a worldwide presence. And uh, the Canadian Embassy in Israel hosted uh, an exclusive screening of the AGPI documentary, The Future of Israel and Its Defenders. Avi, thank you for coming on the program. How do you, how do you feel about what's going on in your country right now, this country, Canada? Uh, well, thank you. Firstly, good afternoon, and thank you very much for having me, Roy. Um, yeah, look, uh, the Jewish community here is um, really concerned, uh, and that's an understatement. Uh, obviously, the announcement of this arrest of, um, you know, a supposed uh, a potential terrorist here in our country who is a minor, um, you know, raises alarms, uh, and my understanding as well, uh, the significance of this, they had to deploy uh, individuals and, and police uh, uh, who are um, experts in chemical and bio biological nuclear weapons. And that, that's, that's how significant I think Canadians should understand this uh, to be. And unfortunately, this 15-year-old uh, uh, was targeting the Jewish community. So we are uh, very concerned. Uh, the anti-Semitism rates are above and beyond, um, you know, ever before in terms of um, uh, uh, their, their increase. And uh, there is a potential for real violence uh, that is being directed at the, the Jewish community. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we believe that the authorities and policing are on top of it. Uh, they're certainly uh, showing a presence, and we commend uh, the police and law enforcement for that. Uh, but nevertheless, what is the concern for the Jewish community, um, and at least for my group as well, is is the uh, uh, declarations and the statements made by our own uh, government officials that allow this to happen and that are emboldening, emboldening, excuse me, uh, uh, potentially many of these uh, of these people who would like to perpetuate violence against the community. And Melanie Jolie, the foreign affairs minister, told the CBC that she favors a, quote, accountability system, end quote, to assess Israel's actions in the war on 
on Hamas. Uh, yeah, and, and and that's the kind of uh, rhetoric that is really unacceptable. I mean, well, doesn't that? Yeah, I'll be sorry to interrupt, but doesn't that just feed what's going on? It, it does. It it feeds what's going on. It it allows anyone who is against Israel in our country uh, to go out on the street, and and certainly demonstrations are are fine. But to call for the genocide of the Jewish people in the Jewish state. That is incomprehensible. And so that, um, that rhetoric by our own ministers and our own government uh, needs to stop. And the problem is that they're equating a democratic state that is an ally of our country to a terrorist organization that if anybody saw the imagery and the videos of October the 7th, the massacre that were not released uh, publicly, would understand would understand how significant these terrorists are and why it's so important for Israel to completely eliminate uh, the structure and their military ability uh, because they are an existential threat to the state of Israel. Um, And people need to ask themselves, you know, would we allow uh, the Nazis at their height uh, to live amongst us and to perpetuate the violence that they did. And most people would say no, because Canada went over and liberated Europe from the Nazis. It's the same thing. When you have a radical uh, terrorist group uh, living side by side with you that perpetuated a mass murder attack, but the crimes were so heinous. Women were not just raped, they were gang raped. And after they were gang raped, they were shot in the head, uh, and their bodies were mutilated. That is the that is what these. And I have to be graphic because it's important for listeners to understand how serious and significant it is, and how wrong it is for Canadian officials uh, to to you know embolden the public uh, by making these statements that Israel should not be defending itself or calling for some kind of accountability. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, unfortunately, this is war, and Israel has to do what it has to do to remove the threat. So AGPI has uh, global presence. Uh, you, uh, you know, that at least the news stories are that Israel is in communication with Hamas uh, about potential release of more hostages. What do you make of that? Look, I mean, I was just in Israel, of course, as, as part of our foundation. Uh, we're about to release a new film uh, on uh, on what's going on. Uh, we 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 spoke to many uh, uh, families of victims of, of hostages. Uh, it is, you know, it is so difficult. It is so difficult to know that your family member uh, has been taken by this group and they're living in just uh, brutal conditions, uh, probably underground. Uh, not given much food and obviously abused, and so and so uh, the release for Israelis of these hostages is paramount. It, mm-hmm. it you know it's paramount, and so Israel is doing all it can uh, to talk to Qatar. And let's not forget Qatar. You know, it's not an angel. It's been funding Hamas, uh, but it's the only thing Israel can do uh, with its ally, the U.S., to talk to Qatar, to talk to Hamas talk to the Egyptians to try to negotiate some kind of release. Okay, let me just, um, I'm sorry, but yeah. in, in the time that we have left, let's bring it back home again. So you have the university and college students, 
And, uh, and, and many of them, not all of them clearly, but many of them have been engaged in the uh, genocidal chanting and the uh, massive criticism of Israel, and we can set it on a scale of one to ten. But how do you change that? Uh, when you, for example, when you have university and college administrations positions not really taking a lead on putting a stop to this, how do you change it? Yeah, and that's and that's exactly the the challenge because in fact it's not just university students; it's the administration and the professors themselves that yeah, are being exactly. complicit. And it's not you know their complicity is not is not just since October the seventh; they've been complicit and it's been growing uh, since two thousand. And you know with with a lot of anti-Israel and anti-Semitic rhetoric on our campuses. And so now it's it's in a heightened state. I mean, when you have someone who's a director of the Sexual Violence or Sexual Assault Center at a Canadian university that signs a petition that says that these rapes of women didn't happen, thankfully that university took action and dismissed the person, but that is the kind of thing that is happening on our university campuses every day. Um, and and for Canadians at large, uh, they should be concerned because, you know, it starts with the Jews, this denial and distortion, but where will it end? Yeah, good question. Avi, thank you so much for uh, taking the time and joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Always appreciate, have, always appreciate speaking with you. Avi Ben Lolo, the founding chairman and CEO of the Abraham Global Peace Initiative, you'll find them at agpi.com, agpi.com. It's been a, such an eventful year, and it's ending in a very eventful manner. Yesterday, Global News had the exclusive information for us about a 15-year-old in Canada, Ontario, who had been arrested by an RCMP task, uh, SWAT team, and it has to do with potential terrorism. And... Uh, and today, Global News has an excellent story, Teen Terrorists. Does Canada have a youth radicalization problem? Mercedes Stevenson was involved in both of the stories. She's the Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the outstanding National Political Affairs Program, The West Block. And Mercedes, back on the program with us today. Mercedes, thank you for coming on again today. We're occupying all of your time. Can you, uh, My pleasure, Roy. Thank you. Could you just recap for people who may not be aware of the situation with the 15-year-old before we talk about today's story? Yeah, absolutely. So and actually, uh, just after we spoke yesterday, uh, shortly before we went to air, the RCMP put out a statement confirming Global News' reporting uh, that a teenager had been arrested. Um, he has been charged at this point with two terror-related offenses, one to do with communicating uh, instructions or, or an instruction manual uh, dealing with uh, potential use of explosives, for terrorist purposes, uh, another one about essentially um, inciting terrorism, and and it specifically mentions in those charges, um, in the second one, that the Jewish community is the target. Um, it doesn't say specifically what or whom or sort of how advanced this may have been, um, but it was interesting to me to see the, the RCMP release those charges, and, and just below it, um, everything that we'll get into in just a moment, warning parents about what to look for in your teenagers, because they're very concerned that this is not a one-off case. This mm -hmm. is actually um, a growing problem, and, and obviously there's not um, a lot that we can say about this particular youth, because, of course, under the law, 
we cannot identify them. But I can tell you, we spoke to his father yesterday. His father told us the family was shocked um, that they had tried to send him for some counseling with a local imam. It's not clear whether he ever went through with that counseling. Uh, and he said that um, his son, you know, did not get this kind of hate from anywhere in the family. Today, we found a uh, user profile on Facebook with the name matching the father's and his likeness um, with a number of posts that were quite derogatory towards Israelis and towards Jews. Uh, We asked him if this was, in fact, his profile. He did not respond to us. But um, the person who owns that account, uh, and we do know we were contacting the father, by the way, because we we had his contact information, but whoever owns that Facebook account that that had the same name and and same photograph up uh, subsequently deleted their posts, but uh, we did screenshot them. We we can't, unfortunately, show them because anything that quotes directly um, puts us at risk of violating the publication ban in this case uh, that protects the young person's identity. But um, obviously that's uh, an angle that now uh, people are looking into. And in fact, uh, the Jewish community, uh, the Center for Jewish Israel uh, Affairs in Canada, is is calling for an investigation into those posts. And that's keenly interesting. Let's let's look at this situation then with... um... Teen terrorists and youth radicalization. Uh, Wednesday, the RCMP arrested a 16-year-old in Calgary. Unrelated incident. And the RCMP said yesterday, as Global News story Teen Terrorists reports, five youths have been arrested for terrorism in the past six months. So what are we looking at here, Mercedes? Uh, the uh, Do we have a youth radicalization problem? What did you find? Certainly, the national security sources who I've been speaking to, even in advance um, of this arrest, have been indicating to me that they were deeply concerned about the radicalization of young people, uh, especially online. A lot a lot of these young people were online a lot during the pandemic. Some have become very isolated. And of course, you know, you can make all kinds of slick, cool-looking videos that get people's attention. You can befriend them online and talk to them from, from anywhere. Um, and the interesting thing to me when I'm talking to national security authorities about this is they don't believe it's limited to one group. Um, so this is not just ISIS trying to do it. It is also uh, groups like the Atomwaffen Division, which is a neo-Nazi group that has a significant presence here in Canada, and there has been arrests recently in that case. Um, so it really spans the spectrum of extremist groups and their their uh, motivations. But what I'm hearing from my police and national security sources is that the commonality is the targeting of very young people. And that's what they're really concerned about, because those are people who are not yet adults, are not yet fully comprehending the possible consequences of their actions, maybe socially isolated, maybe easier to access than an adult. Um, And so the RCMP is actually going to start a national campaign with a number of warning signs for what to look for in your children and to keep in mind that, you know, it is not just one type of group that does this. So to to look for certain changes in language or behavior that we can go into in a minute um, that could indicate your child is being radicalized by one of the many extremist groups who are are targeting Canadian children. You know, you mentioned uh, ISIS, and I was actually thinking, uh, this sounds very comparable to what we witnessed and what we heard about when radicalization in support of ISIS was taking place a few years ago, online, uh, radicalization, and then uh, some of the younger people, actually very young people, made their way to, uh, to, to Raqqa, which was the, the ISIS capital. We, we could have something similar developing here, no? 
that's that's the concern, and, and, and the difference being that um, in some cases they would not be enticed to leave the country. If you're talking about, for example, the Adamoffin division, uh, they want to seek the genocide of um, people here in Canada, of, of racialized people, of Jewish people, of anyone who does not meet their criteria of white nationalism. And um, this is where it's, it's really key to emphasize that uh, we saw the ISIS model, and, and you're totally correct that it's, it's a similar form of radicalization, but this can cross groups now and it can cross purposes. Um, and For example, Atomoff and Division operates frequently in Canada in conjunction um, with these local so-called clubs that look like they might be jujitsu or BJJ clubs, but there's actually connections to white nationalism. Um, and that is a much more in-person radicalization that's happening as well. It, it is not purely online, uh, but the commonality is really this targeting of vulnerable people because they're under the age of, of 18 and, and uh, you know, giving them, whether you're talking about uh, the more traditional gangs or something um, like what we're seeing now, this, this sense of belonging, this sense of mission, uh, and obviously that can be extremely dangerous when you're talking about groups that have their roots in terrorism. We've been very fortunate in 2023 to have uh, some terrific guests quite willing to join us and speak with us about issues that matter to each and every one of us. And one of those really, really terrific guests is Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs and the author of the book that I consider really a must-read and a must-own for everybody in this country. If you care about what's going to happen, you need to get Daryl's book next. We're measuring the mood of Canadians on a myriad of issues in 2023 was Ipsos Public Affairs, and they did a tremendous amount of polling for Global News. And uh, we have an opportunity now to speak again with Daryl about 2023 and where we may be headed and where the moods may change or where they may just harden as we get into the new year. Daryl, thank you uh, for, for joining us, and thanks for everything you did for us throughout 2023. It's always a pleasure, Roy. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I, I have this question that I've just been thinking about, and that is people have been so at odds with so much, and legitimately so, uh, in the last 12 months, at least in, in my view. Are people willing to, do you find people are really willing to engage in providing their opinions when Ipsos calls and says, we're, we're, we're doing a, a survey, I don't quite know how you, how you phrase it, um, but we're doing, we want your opinion, your view on this issue, and it's a volatile issue. Are people willing to share? Yeah, they seem to be. I mean, so uh, what we uh, were able to track is people's reaction an awful lot to what's actually happening in the public environment. So what's happening in their lives, what they're reading about in the news, what they're talking to their friends about. And when we do get in touch with them, uh, they do seem to be willing to respond to surveys. Uh, the, the thing, though, these days is that you can't do them as easily as you used to be able to do them, uh, in the sense that you could just do one survey and get everybody. Uh, now we have kind of multiple ways of contacting people and having conversations with them. So I think we do get a pretty good sense of what's going on in, in terms of the conversations that people are having and what they care about. Mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting you're not doing that. I'm just wondering how, how willing people are to talk. They're, I find people are willing to argue. Uh, and but not often willing to talk. And uh... well, 
You know, it's funny. Uh, and, you know, you, um, you deal with this every time you go on the air. You get people who are really excited to talk. You know, they have strong opinions about things. Right. But it's that pe- group of people who are in the middle, you know, the common sense Canadian that's out there, uh, that um, uh, they may not be strident in their views, they may be quiet in their views, but they do respond to surveys. And, and, you, and you get to see how extreme the extremes are and where most of the people sit. And most of the people sit in a fairly middle place in terms of most political issues or socialist issues that you would want to talk about. They're, they're, they're pretty common sense. Yeah, it's a good thing to remember. I, I tend to run into people who want to argue with me about something I've said on the air. And, uh, and I, I always say, look, I'm not working right now. If you want to pay me, I'll do a show with you. <laughs> but, but I'm not working right now. Here's my hourly rate. You want to do it? Um, Carol, let's start with this. What do people feel good about at the end of 23? Well, they feel good about their families. They feel good about their, uh, their, own, uh, their own personal aspirations and, and how they're living their lives. But they're feeling under a lot of pressure trying to do those things. So it's not like Canadians are into self-loathing or anything of that nature. For the most part, they think that they're, in a, you know, they're, they're pretty reasonable people. But they find that the world is getting harder and harder to deal with, uh, particularly at the moment on anything that has to do with the cost of living. It's not inflation, it's the cost of living. And has that dominated Canadian attention in, in 2023? And if it has, has it been a straight line or has it been a fluctuation? No, it's been pretty dominant. It's it's really what happened is once COVID declined, you saw inflation, cost of living issues really take the place of where COVID was. And not just in Canada, it's, it's a pretty universal thing right now. People are very concerned about the cost of living around the world. Yes, it's related to inflation. Yes, it's related to interest rates. But really what they're saying to us is it's not about these technical types of economic things that, uh, uh, you know, that central bankers talk about or people who are reporting on the economy talk about. It's things like going into the grocery store and not being able to afford to buy what they used to be able to buy. It's getting their mortgage bills, their mortgage bills in and saying, you know, I, this is unsustainable for me. It's, it's having to deal with things like rent. It's, you know, all the things that go into just trying to get by on a daily pay, uh, basis for, for, for most people, other than the truly affluent these days, are, are just getting harder and harder. And when you have those kinds of pressures on you, um, uh, you don't really have a lot of space to think about uh, you know, big issues that are confronting the world. You're really focused. Your, your, your space gets a lot smaller and more personal. Okay. Yeah, I, I understand that. You mentioned uh, housing, uh, mortgages, and rent. Let's talk about that. How volatile an issue is that? What do you want to share with us about the housing issue? Explosive. It's explosive. And the reason that it's explosive is that this is the first time in my professional career, and I've been doing this about 35 years, where we've ever seen housing this high on the list of concerns that people have. And the difference in the character of the issue is it's not specifically anymore about the homeless or low-income housing. It's middle-class people saying, I can't get the type of housing that I feel that I'm entitled to because of all the things that I've done right in my life. This is, this is really what the, the, the tragedy is on the, on, on the housing front. It's people who are um, middle-class saying that I'm now being denied what I feel that I've earned. Yeah, we're talking about a, a roof over your head. This is what we're talking about if we break it down to the most um, basic common denominator. We're talking about shelter. I spoke with somebody a couple of days ago who said to me, I spent 20 years saving and then buying 
and then maintaining my home, paid my mortgage every month, took care of the repairs that had to be taken care of, provided a, a home as best I could for, for my kids as a single dad. And he said, and now, because of circumstances that I have no control over, I'm probably going to lose that home that I saved for, that I invested in, that I cared about, that I still care about. He said, I'll make some money when I sell it. But that's not what it's about. I'm going to lose. He looked at me, he said, Roy, I'm going to lose my home. And that just struck me, Daryl. And I thought, there are so many people who are feeling probably exactly the same way. I talk about, you know, and I'm not being flippant when I say it. But I say that I see the surrender signs at the, at the, at the, on people's lawns. And the surrender sign to me, when I see a whole bunch of them in a neighborhood where two years ago you never would have seen one, or if you did, it was down in a day, the for sale sign. You're seeing them more and more. And I think that story of that person I talked to is in a, you know, depending on what the family dynamic is, that story is being repeated over and over and over again across this country. Yeah, it reminds me of the early 1980s. Is, is that bad, eh? We're going back to, yeah, because people are really feeling uh, that they're in precarious, they're in a precarious situation, and you know we've really only been through about a year of the situation in extreme, where interest rates have really you know ratcheted up considerably, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of people uh, coming up in 2024 20, uh, that are going to have their mortgages coming due, and it's going to be shocking for them, and they're already sitting on an awful lot of debt. Um, because it probably cost them a lot of money to get that house. So it's it's and it's not just the roof over their head, Roy. It's it's a really important point about a roof being over their head. It's that roof is their sense of success, their sense of wealth, their sense of achievement yeah. in life. Yeah. And when you take that away from somebody, you say everything that I've worked for over the space of whatever period of time is it it no longer represents who I am. Yeah. And that's what we're facing. Yeah. That's what that dad was saying. I'm sure that. Uh, you put uh, so succinctly into what you know, the emotions that he was feeling. And, and honestly, I thought he was going to start to cry. There wasn't anger. There was just utter disappointment. And, and he said, I, it's not because of me. Um, and he said, you know, that sounds rather selfish when I say that. But it's not because of anything I did. It's what's happened to me and so many people in this country. So the, the housing issue is, uh, is, is extremely volatile. Let me just read you this. It's Global News headline. Most voters still say Trudeau should resign and expect an election in 2024. That's a December 17 Global News story. I'll just read you a couple of lines. A majority of Canadians again said in December that it's time for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to step aside from this role and as leader of the Liberal Party, but most don't believe he will do it. And over half of Canadians think there will be an election this year. The new polling done by Ipsos exclusively for Global News found that 69% of Canadians feel Trudeau should resign as Liberal leader and Prime Minister. And the findings come after earlier polling by Ipsos for Global News done between November 14 and 17, suggesting 72% of Canadians felt the same, marking a three-point decrease in the sentiment, but within the poll's margin of error. So what do we have here, Daryl? 69% is a big number. Yeah, and in, in the previous poll, we found a third of people who were voting for the Liberal Party felt that. And remember, we've got the Liberals down to about 25%, so um, it's, 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 it's pretty overwhelming. Uh, I can't really remember numbers like this, 
at the federal level probably till you know since back to Brian Mulroney back in uh, in, in uh, the uh, the early 1990s 93 uh, where people yeah people so worked up about having a, a prime minister go um, and that's that's basically what we're seeing right now and they the then progressive conservative party led by Brian Mulroney um, wound up with two seats. Yeah, they certainly did. And, and, you know, people kind of misremember things historically. But what happened in that election was that uh, it wasn't so much that the Liberals went won, although they did in, in the end win. It was that the, the Conservative support completely fell apart and people went to all sorts of other places. Now, the Liberals aren't vulnerable in the same way because there's no Reform Party in Bloc Québécois uh, sitting within their own caucus to just evaporate and go to other places. But, uh, yeah, they're in, they're in pretty pretty difficult circumstances. I would say something looking back to where they were in the 1980s or you know, even uh, later than that under Ignatiev and beyond. They're in, they're in very, very difficult circumstances. So if we were to talk about uh, politics and the mood of Canadians, or maybe we should find a different word other than politics, but it'll serve until we find one. Um, and I, I suspect we could do it in five minutes if we set our heads to it and minds to it. But if you, if you, if you enter politics into a discussion, you have 10 Canadians sitting at a table, different parts of the country, different ages, um, and, uh, and, and you, you bring up the issue of federal politics, how many, how energized are they going to become? And particularly if the issue of a potential federal election next year enters the discussion. Well, they're actually fairly energized. Now there are people who are always into politics and they're going to talk about this, but even people who were voting for Justin Trudeau in the last three elections, uh, who were initially excited by uh, uh, the prospect of him ruling the country back in 2015 when he won, even they're tired of it. Um, and even, even if they don't hold any animosity toward uh, the incumbent prime minister, their, their view is that it's probably time for a change. So unless um, uh, that changes, that's where we're headed. Yeah, I, well, I'm, I, I have my own views, and it's not important that I express those in, in our conversation today. What, uh, Daryl, what, what interests you? What got your interest in 2023? I think the thing that interested me most was the emergence of the priority on cost of living. Because we, we haven't really seen that um, in, in some time. Uh, and, you know, we've just been through the pandemic and, and how the country was going to come out of that and what was going to be the preoccupation of Canadians, and, and but also around the world. And there were a lot of people I remember at the, the start of the pandemic, and even at the midpoint of the pandemic, were saying things like, well, we could be moving into a roaring 20s type of a situation, that there's going to be a great amount of exuberance that's going to come out of the, uh, the pandemic, and people are going to have a lot of confidence, and we're going to have a lot of, uh, of pent-up energy that we want, we're, we're going to want to get out in a positive way. That's basically not happened. So uh, that's the thing that's really interesting to me, how one... Uh, crisis seems to have been replaced by, and crisis is an overused word, by another fundamental preoccupation in terms of public opinion, and that is this issue of the cost of living. Again, an antecedent to to the uh, to the pandemic. We're still living through the consequences of it. So I've said to a lot of people, a lot of people over the last few weeks, I will not be sorry to see 2023 disappear in my rearview mirror. And, uh, and you know that on a personal level, it was uh, 
It was a tough year for me. I was diagnosed with stage 4 metastatic prostate cancer. And prostate cancer is an increasing concern for men who all too frequently ignore symptoms, as I did. But earlier this year, we had the opportunity, and I've gotten the opportunity to get to know this uh, gentleman quite well. Um, we had the opportunity to speak with Todd Seals, who in 2007, at the age of 42, was given just months to live following a metastatic stage 4 prostate cancer diagnosis. That's a hell of a lonely feeling. Sixteen years later, Todd Seals is still very much alive and living well, although he continues to battle his cancer. New and excellent but hugely expensive medications are available today. They weren't when Todd was first diagnosed. And his story has been reported on by major media and health organizations. When Todd rejoins us today with a message for all men, their significant others, and families as we transition from 23 to 24 about a year ago, I was, um, I was in California on vacation. I didn't feel well. And I kept looking for some antacids because I thought I just had an upset stomach. Well, that wasn't the case. Cancer was obviously as significant at the end of December as it was when it was diagnosed in February of this year. Um, so please don't let 2023 pass without acknowledging symptoms and make sure 2024 is the year of treatment and maximizing, maximizing your life. Uh, I've read Todd's story. I've talked to him. I admire him. He's, he's, a, he's like a good luck charm to me. He, he's a mentor. I've got to stop now. But there's a, there's a line that I loved that you, uh, that you had and that I saw in the Men's Health magazine piece, Todd. You said, they say people faced with death have two choices, pick up the gloves or pick up a shovel. I've always been a fighter. It's really right so important, isn't it? Uh, I think fighting, uh, having the right attitude makes makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference in in this battle. It it makes actually having the right attitude makes a difference in everything, but especially against this fight. You you have to know that you're gonna that you're gonna beat this disease. I mean, and, and you have to you have to wake up. And that's part of your breakfast every day is today I'm going to beat this disease. Um, I ain't saying it's worked for me personally. I, I, I give a lot of credit to the man upstairs on this one. But, um, you know, it, it certainly doesn't help. And one thing about it, I tend to enjoy every day. Yeah. What do you, what do you most remember about your – I said it was a lonely feeling. What do you most remember about the reaction to the news that you probably had months to live? You were just 42. <laughs> yeah, I was just 42. Well, well you know, I, I was extremely symptomatic. Um, so, I mean, it, it really didn't come as a, as a surprise. I, I knew something was wrong. And uh, uh, it, 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 was, it was a bit of a shock at first. And, and I, I, I spent a lot of time just kind of hanging out in the wilderness and, uh, and, and, and just taking it all in, uh, the diagnosis, the world, the birds singing. I, I mean, the bear that came up out of the woods and kind of looked at me like, are you a snack? <laughs> that was great. That's such a great scene that you described in that Men's Health magazine piece. A bear shows up. <laughs> he did. He just, he's like 20 feet away from me and he's standing there looking at me and I'm like, 
Oh, maybe being out in the woods wasn't <laughs> such a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, but, you know, it's it's really interesting. I, I, I wanna say something before I forget. It's really interesting when I was listening to your introduction and you talked about, you know, don't ignore your symptoms. The problem is is that oftentimes prostate cancer, even advanced disease, it, it has no symptoms whatsoever. I I mean, you know, in hindsight, I guess there's always subtle symptoms, that, but most of us would just attribute it to, to getting older, you know, um, a weakened urine stream, um, yeah. you know, uh, stuff like that, that could actually be a, uh, a symptom of, of prostate cancer, but it could be BHP or, you know, it, it could just be a bad morning. I, I, so um, not only don't ignore the symptoms, but get, get a PSA test. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're entering, you know, the, your fourth decade, you need to start demanding a PSA test because younger men are getting diagnosed with this disease more often than ever. And unfortunately, when younger men are diagnosed with this disease, it's often an aggressive strain and it's often diagnosed metastatic because we tend to ignore everything as men because, let's face it, we're men. We're men. We can't admit to anything. <laughs> we can't. And and I have found it so refreshing to talk to you. There have been times when we've had conversations. I've been feeling a little bit down in the dumps about this thing. And I, I talk to you, and half an hour later, I'm I'm feeling good. I'm feeling, and I'm a positive person. I I talk to this cancer of mine. I tell it, you're not going to win. You're not going to win. Yeah. You're it's just not going to happen. You might as well just take off because I'm going to make your life hell. And, uh, and I'm doing the best I can, but treatment itself is, is challenging. And for you, it was extremely complicated. And because while medications can turn the cancer docile, it does eventually figure out a way around the medication. And so, uh, it, to talk about that, please, well, how difficult was it for you to deal with improvement and then cancer growing again, and then having to submit to more and different treatments. What was that like for you? Well, let's let's just say it was kind of like a roller coaster. Uh, you know, there there were some long stretches where it was uphill, and then there was just a lot of coasting. Um, it was uh, it, it was a long process for me, though. Um, the cancer figured out how to beat the hormone therapy by year four. And, um, you know, we had to, we had to search for something else, but I was always searching. I was always searching for the next thing. I was always trying to figure out what's next because I, I wanted to stay ahead of it. And, and I figure, um, to know more about prostate cancer than my doctor does because he has to know about all cancers. I only need to be an expert in one. And, and so when I go to see my doctor, I really need to know what I'm talking about. So even when the cancer did figure it out, even when it be, became hormone refractory, I knew what the next step was going to be for me. And, and I think that's probably one of the most important things we as men, or actually anyone, I don't want to just you know, say that for men, but anybody facing a cancer diagnosis is become an expert in your disease and always know what's available and what's coming down the pipe. Yeah, I, you would see because of that what you just said, and you've said to this again. You've said this to me personally. You would see if you looked at my phone. There's a list of questions I have for my doctor when I next see him, 
And, and I, I take this so seriously because of what you shared. You've engaged your doctors and you've made suggestions as opposed to being passive. And uh, that may be what many men decide is the best, the best route, but you, you, you can't. You have to become um, your own best advocate. And I think doctors actually respect that when, you, when, they, when they know that you're paying attention and they're asking questions that are relevant. I think they, I think I, my sense is, and I get that certainly from my doctor, he respects that when I bring this up. Doctor um, is any kind of a human being. He's going to he's going to respond that way. He's you know he is going to respect it. There are some doctors that that I've come across that you know in in the course of this disease and like you said it's been 17 years, which um, they actually feel like like uh, like I shouldn't be asking these questions or I, I shouldn't be recommending these treatments because. Um, you know, they had to go to medical school for eight years and probably more to be a specialist. Um, and so some of them take it the wrong way, but it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter if they take it the wrong way or not. I know what's best for me and you know what's best for you. And, and you know, the physicians are there to serve us. That is their job. Um, and so you, sometimes you have to get around the uh, the ego. But... I've always I've had pretty much really good experience with them. Let me get at something that uh, a lot of men probably wouldn't want to speak about, but it's a reality. And uh, that is that the drugs suppress testosterone because that's what the metastasized cancer actually feeds off. And how did you handle that? I mean, it's difficult for men, particularly younger men. You were again, you were in your early forties when you were diagnosed. What effect did your medications, and they weren't as sophisticated as they are today, what effect did those medications have on you physically and emotionally? I, I mean, you know, I keep referencing a, a roller coaster, but it's true. I, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot, the side effects of androgen deprivation are catastrophic for a man. When you, when you lose testosterone, I, I mean, really... You, you don't have any motivation. Um, our, our brains are wired to to run on testosterone. In fact, everything about the masculine physique is is testosterone born. And so, without it, you know, uh, we uh, we we can become a shell of ourselves in a lot of aspects. Uh, I think when I started growing breasts, um, oh, that was a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to consider the good part, you know. I mean, well, what's good about this? Well, I got something to play with, I guess. <laughs> but no, um, I'm sorry about that. That's no, no, no. This is this is this is the Todd Seals I know. There's humor, <laughs> and I think your humor helps everybody and every man who's living with what you and I are living with, or a different variation of prostate cancer, or is fearful that you may have something going on. It's so important that there's that there's humor, and it's it's directed humor that you direct it yourself. I think that's what's important as well. Well, thank you. Um, I, I think it's made a tremendous impact. Um, yeah, I've I've always felt better when I've laughed until until it hurt, until I cried, until my stomach hurt so bad I had to stop or or I was going to pee. You know, it was just. <laughs> 
<laughs> and you, you're so cleansed afterwards. And, you know, it can really, it can really, you know, uh, cause a change, cause, cause a change in your overall attitude. And, and so the way we look at things, and yes, I use humor. Oh, man, I, I think it's a weapon. I think it's one of the main weapons in my arsenal. You, you, you told this story that when you started to feel really good after treatment, and you outlived that prognosis of just a few months to live at 42, <laughs> I'm going to start laughing too hard to tell this. <laughs> you, you jumped off a bridge. You'd, oh. you'd been <laughs> over many times in your life, but never had the testicular courage, as I call it, to jump off. So <laughs> first thing you said, the first thing I learned is never jump 60 feet into the water and land on your butt with a swollen prostate. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I, I, just, I just howl when I think about that. And it, you're right. It, I feel better about dealing with what I'm dealing with or I can laugh. And that, that's probably right. It doesn't matter what the disease is. It doesn't matter what, what it is that's challenging your life. If you have an opportunity to laugh, take it. Exactly. Um, this, in fact, this is my favorite time of year. I, I, I love being around family. I love being around friends. And, and so um, with, with the, the, the holiday season upon us, this is always my, we just had a Christmas gathering this morning for some friends. And, and you know, there's always, a, there's always a lot of laughter. And I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know, Roy. It's, what what else are we going to do? Are we going to sit around and, and and cry about things? Yeah. I mean, I always I always look at it as at least I'm not some poor little kid that's that's got to deal with cancer. You know, I've yeah. I've had a really amazing life, and my life continues to be amazing in every single way. And uh, and 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 laughter and joy and and just allowing that to manifest in our lives, it it can really whether it changes the outcome outcome of our prognosis or not, it definitely can change how we deal with whatever's coming down the rails. Yeah. We have about uh, two minutes here. I feel compelled to tell everybody how much time we have, which in your or my case, I shouldn't be doing. But um, uh, Todd, what was it like the last, what has that 17-year journey been like for you? And how do you look forward to keep going forward. Uh, can you explain that to us in, a, in about a minute and a half? <laughs> wow. Well, you, you've definitely, definitely given me some work um, and a challenge at that. Um, Roy, all I can say is, is that this, this journey has been a blessing um, in every, in every way um, it could be. And, and, and it always it hasn't always been easy. I mean, I, I, I don't want to mislead anybody. This, this disease can, can present a lot of challenges. But you know if, if, you, if you're willing to you know put on the gloves and step into the ring and, and really face it head on and, and face it with you know with a grateful heart, basically, and, and just choose to live every single day that you're given. 
um, as a gift, then it can turn something that's, well, it's scary and in a lot of ways, and and it really can cause men to, in a lot of ways, be a shell of what they once were if, if we allow that to happen. But if you can face that every single day with joy in your heart and just and be grateful for what you have, um, I think you can find that um, the, the journey, even through something as serious as metastatic prostate cancer, can be a blessing. I mean, you can, you can really have a lot of blessings through this. Yeah. Todd, thank you so much uh, for coming on. I know you usually spend the weekends with your wife. Thank your wife, please, for, for um, agreeing that, that this would be possible. I think it's important that our listeners hear you again. Thank you for your friendship and uh, for your inspiration. Uh, and that's where you are. You're an inspiration to me. And uh, we will see each other in 2024 in Nolan. I'm looking forward to it, Roy, and thank you for having me. Anytime, my friend. We'll stay in touch. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 